0: Well, good morning again, and this is in the church year, as we use some of it is the Epiphany season, the season after Pentecost, and uh, the revealing of Jesus and so this particular Sunday was when the when the magi came and visited uh, him shortly after his when he was a young child, not right at the birth, but it would have been a little bit later and uh, I think it 's a fascinating story and before I get into my, my message here about the epiphany season in some years i 've talked about the magi, but the Magi were most likely from what is, we would call today Iran and they, or Persian. And uh, these Persians came and they were probably uh, Zoroastrian priests or Zoroastrian uh, wise men or functionaries within that religion. And that religion was one of the first monotheistic one-God religions uh, that developed and along, uh, alongside Judaism. And so it's very interesting to me, anyway, I find this Epiphany Sunday unique that God uses their earnest search for truth of these Iranian Zoroastrian priests or wise men or magi or magoi, these, these, some would translate it magician later on, but it was wise men or part of the, the priesthood or the ruling class within Zoroastrianism, that he used their honest pursuit of truth to bring them to Jesus. And that gives me great hope in a world where we often wrestle with what does it mean to share Jesus And as Jesus' exclusive claims on all people everywhere, is God working anywhere else? He works in his church most visibly, but he's also worked by the Holy Spirit everywhere when people are earnestly seeking truth. And oftentimes it's hard to do that because we all have cultures and layers of things that, that bias us against that. But I like to think that the Holy Spirit is prepping hearts, and there's a kernel of the gospel in every culture, in every people, and even in religions where there's an honest search for truth, that there's an opening. And that means that we don't avoid these conversations, but that we should look to engage these conversations with our friends if they're Sikh or Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu or pop atheist or whatever, that we should trust that God is at work because he used the Magi, and even within their religion, he condescended to their search for truth and their scan of the stars and the sky to bring them to Jesus. That gives me great good hope that he is at work in our world and even in our city and in global cities like Vancouver. Amen? I don't know, there's something about the story of the Magi that just gets me, that the first worshipers, and they weren't full converts, obviously, because Jesus was just a baby, but the first people who worship him as a king and as a lord are these Iranians Zoroastrians coming to Jesus. That just blows my mind. There's something, if, if that doesn't like give you something on epiphany, you're dead, okay? We need to pray for resurrection, all right? You can tell I've been in America for a couple weeks. So I've, you know, <laughs> started going back to form. We visited. Uh, we were at uh, First Baptist Church in Sioux Falls for the two Sundays. We were there with friends and uh, some friends that were part of our church plant that now are on the leadership team there at First B and serving in all kinds of ministries. So it was delightful. And uh, there, they were. It's the American Baptist denomination, which is kind of similar to NAB, but it was the building is right next to the old seminary that was the NAB seminary building before they sold it. So there was always lots of history between those two places, First B and the NAB seminary. Well, this morning, I feel like I'm ringing a little bit. If you can clean that up, that would be marvelous without making my voice go all wonky. And uh, if I need to use a handheld, let me know. Can you guys hear me okay in the back? Yeah? Con, you're awake? You know I had to call you out, my brother. Okay, all right, he's there. He's, he's, he's funk. He's like closest to the door, ready to bolt. Well, Ruth could stop him, though, because she's in the usher seat. So, All right. This morning, we're going to look, and in, in the next few Sundays, I want to unpack, and I will have a guest here in February. Ed Ng is going to come in and be a Q&A guest, and I hope to get in some relationship, Valentine's Day vibe with Ed here uh, in February. But for the next few Sundays, I want to dive into this idea of three sort of overlapping concepts as we begin our new calendar year. Uh, the, the connected themes are those of flourishing shalom or the hebrew word for peace wholeness salvation shalom and also the uh, the theme of the practices we can do to make space for god's presence in our neighborhood and in our lives so these three overlapping themes i want to discuss in various ways in the next few sundays flourishing shalom and practices of making space in our lives because we do have to actually choose to make space to bring God's presence into our neighborhood and into our own lives, both inward and outward focus of that. And I was thinking about flourishing, and I came across this little news snippet that was out some years ago in Christianity Today. It said, what contribution does one church make to a local community? And often we wrestle with, why gather? Why, be, why have institution? Why and And why did churches have property tax exemptions? Atheist friends always like to, to go down that path and more specifically there 's a study of that was done and in, in what is one church 's worth in purely let 's just use one of a secular brass tax measure of financial wealth that 's not always the measure, but that 's one way to do it and According to a survey about ten years ago, on average, every year one inner city church contributed four hundred and seventy six Hundred thousand dollars $663 to their local economy. There was some research done by a guy named Ram Khanna. He was part of the University of Pennsylvania professor, and he himself was non-religious. In his survey in 2011, he concluded that one church alone, First Baptist Church in Philadelphia in the States, contributed over $6 million a year to the local economy, 10 times more than its annual budget. Based on his research, some of First Baptist's financial contributions include, and so he's monetizing all these things that churches do. So the volunteers of this First Baptist worked uh, volunteer hours were about $94,000 worth of volunteer hours. Weekly hours times 52 weeks times twenty twenty-five per hour. The reduced crime rate he monetized, a reduction of $64,000, crimes within the neighborhood compared to surrounding neighborhoods by the presence and activity of that church in its neighborhood in Philadelphia. Getting people off drugs and alcohol, $78,750, about $15,750 per person helped to monetize the value of this church. Building enhancements and capital campaigns, sixty thousand dollars annually. He estimated that half of the expenses that they had to do in this their normal upkeep were spent locally in Philly. Helping people gain employment, seven hundred and twenty five thousand dollars, about fourteen thousand per arranged employment. This church also helped people with mental health, suicide prevention, fifty eight thousand dollars, about nineteen thousand per person saved through clergy intervention. Divorces prevented, $22,500, about $900 per couple pouring into. The church is one of the few places that is for your marriage and covenant relationship beyond contract, covenant. K-12 school, this church was involved in a school, $3,489,926, the number of students times about $10,000 per student, the investment of this church in a school. And this was one church, First Baptist in Philly, obviously bigger than Pilgrim Church. But think of the millions of dollars, if you put it in dollar terms, that we have when a church is flourishing, when a church is seeking the shalom of the city and the neighborhood it's in, and the church members are actively making space for others and for God in their life. As we begin this year, the challenge, the call is to not grow weary in well-doing, as the author of Hebrews says, but that we would pursue and lean into what he has for us. Rest when we need to rest. Let Jesus carry the yoke with us. But indeed, he does have a yoke for us to carry with him. So I want to pray this morning. I want to look at two scripture passages and just talk a little more about flourishing today. I'm so glad you're here with us today. Welcome to Pilgrim. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for what you're doing in this church. Thank you that you are the God of the living and the dead, resurrection and the life to come. And Lord, where we have lost hope in our lives as individuals, prophetically breathe new life into us today by the foolishness of preaching, the proclamation that Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. There's another thing that's working in this world and, Lord, I pray that you'd use me. I'm a saint and sinner in process like everyone here, leading in by your grace. And, Lord, take your word and make it come alive today. Or as you said through Paul to Timothy, the breathing of the Spirit, the inspiration of the Spirit through the word, do that in this place. We know that knowledge alone does not transform, for there are many people that know the Bible backwards and forwards in all the languages, and yet do not have a living relationship with you. So we come here today before your word, knowing that knowledge in and of itself will not transform us, but engagement with it and yielding to it and to your spirit and community, that will bring life change. And so Holy Spirit, come and breathe in this place through the word, through the worship, through the people, through the saints, the sinners, the questioners, the skeptics, the believers, Lord, do it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. Amen. Did I tell you I'm glad to be back in Vancouver and not the frozen tundra of South Dakota? <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. Uh, I want to remind you of our vision statement, then read these two passages. The vision statement of this church that we are learning to lean into is, says this. It says, We exist. And you have to listen carefully because I got back on Thursday so we don't have all the stuff on the screen or the inserts so just turn on your listening ears, turn up your hearing aid that works, whatever you need to do. We exist to love our city, to invite our neighbors to flourish by rooting our lives or rooting our lives in the outrageous love and life of Jesus. I'm going to say that one more time. We exist... First Sunday of the new calendar year in January, we exist at Pilgrim Church to love our city, to invite our neighbors, to flourish by rooting our lives in the outrageous love and life of Jesus. If we were to pull out some key words there, there's love, there's invite, there's flourish, there's root, and there's Jesus bringing it all together at the core and the beginning and all of it. And so today I want to explore a passage that relates to the vision and unpack that a little bit. And so we're going to read from Jeremiah chapter 29. And for those of you that need a break, now's the time to stand and stretch. Stand with me if you're able to do so. Please stand. It requires bending your knees and using these muscles. And boy, I've got holiday insulation going on too. That's what South Dakota does to you. I went to the gym a few times, but like training pretty much fell off the map. So lots of Christmas cookies. I'm ready. Let's read Jeremiah 29. If you have your Bible, turn to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is in the Old Testament. It is the first, like, two-thirds of the Bible, and uh, it's a bigger prophet, so it should be easy if you're doing the flip method of finding it. You should be able to find Jeremiah. Pretty easy. Bigger book there. Isaiah, Jeremiah, a major prophet. We're going to read a few verses there, and then I'm going to move to 1 John after that. So hear this this morning, starting at verse 1, Jeremiah chapter 29, these are the words of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining elders among the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So he's writing from Jerusalem to these leaders that have been taken into exile because the, 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 is, 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 Judah has been captured by the power of Babylon, the major imperial power of the area. Verse 2 this was after the king Jechoiniah and the queen mother and the court officials and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem and the artisans and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. So you see the major dignitaries of the kingdom of Judah, including people who could do things, including the people who could produce art and the smiths and the people who could produce armor. That's interesting who they take into captivity. Basically, anyone who could help them reform their cultural identity has been taken into captivity The letter was sent by the hand of Elisha, son of, I'm going to murder all the names, Shaphan and Gamaria, son of Hilkiah, whom the king Zedekiah of Judah sent to Babylon, to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And it said this, verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, so this is a letter from the prophet Jeremiah to the exiles, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, hear the language in there, whom I have sent into exile, Verse 5 Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. And here in verse 7 But seek the welfare. We might say the shalom. In fact, it is the same word as shalom or the peace of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its flourishing welfare shalom, you will find your flourishing welfare shalom. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let the prophets, do not let the prophets and the diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, says the Lord. Let's pray, and then we'll look at the last verse. Again, we prayed once, but Lord, move your word in this house. Do your work in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. The themes we want to explore quickly this morning, and then we have communion, so I'm going to make it quicker than usual flourishing, shalom, or peace, and practices of making space. I want to unpack this idea of making space in order that we might flourish and be people who invite and have the sense that we have something to offer that our city desperately needs, our neighbors, our friends, the people that we've ignored or overlooked or given up on in our lives. Perhaps the majority of Vancouver that feels that we live in this beautiful place, this is sort of a vacation city. I remember a pastor friend uh, talking to you here who's moved to a city in the States, said he wanted to go someplace where he could make a bigger impact, where there was more things happening, because Vancouver, people are kind of checked out a little bit. We have something we have to acknowledge in our city and in our own lives. That Our cultural tug here of what it means to be a Vancouverite pulls us towards sort of apathy, pulls us towards sort of a narcissism, an inward consumption. And so as believers, we have a challenge in our own hearts and then also to invite others that they are destined for more. That this is not just a good place to park your money if you're fleeing a bad regime. This is not just a good place to go skiing or to see the mountains or to hug the tree, but that indeed you're created for more than that. All of those things are, can be good gifts. Well, some of them are good gifts. Uh, we well, Don't we'll talk about housing in Vancouver. That's not necessarily a good gift. But anyway, but there's more than that. That those things become disordered idols out of place. That in order to flourish, we need to learn to make space, to clear out the clutter in our lives, and to begin to do that with the values and the vision that God has for us as revealed in Jesus Christ. Jeremiah 29 is a fascinating passage. In fact, throughout most of the book of Jeremiah, the word peace is used negatively until we get to Jeremiah 29, verse 7, which is part of our vision statement as well as a local church. Peace is used as something that is false, something that is being promised by false prophets, but is not true. Let me give you a little more about the background here. The fall of the last kingdom of ancient Israel, the kingdom of Judah, had occurred in 597 B.C. or B.C.E., before Christ before common era however you want to measure it 597 BC the elite are carried off into exile The religious leaders, the rulers, most of the priesthood, the artisans, the people who could make weapons of war and work with metal, they are carried off into Babylon from the land that God had said to David, this is is the land that I give you to build on. Their whole religious system was being rocked by this experience of the final fall of the last kingdom of ancient Israel. It's almost, for some people anyway, we can debate this, but in North America, this De-Christianization, or at least the the veneer of Christianization for some people, is like this exile experience. Some of us who are more Anabaptists would argue that much of what was called Christianity was never Christianity because if it required the sword and the laws of the state and not the power of the Holy Spirit, it was a civil religion version, not the real thing. But that's a sermon for another day. But this sense of loss of place and land has happened to them. The final stone of the kingdom, the the Davidic kingdom, as they understood it in the political terms of power and resource and uh, self-control and autonomy over the region. They've lost that. And so they have this battle that they have in their hearts and minds. We come across, should they submit to the kingdom of Babylon particularly those that are still back in Jerusalem and those that are now in Babylon, or should they try to rebel? Or should those that are back that didn't get in exile, should they try to align with Egypt? Should they try to align with other smaller nations? If we can get a big enough coalition together, we can overthrow the Babylonians. Jeremiah's dealing with those folks back in Jerusalem while writing the other folks that are now in the capital of Babylon. Should the people in Babylon sit there and Believe that we're only going to be here a short time because Jerusalem, we're going to recapture it. We're going to take it back over for Jesus. We're going to get the right politicians in office. We're going to overthrow the, that evil, well, pick whichever evil prime minister you want to call evil. I don't want to name anybody's name. Uh, we're going to overthrow that awful party, that godless rule. We're going, to, we're going to come back. So we're only going to be in Babylon for a short amount of time. If you're going to get married, hold the phone on that. If you were trying to have a family, hold the phone on that. If you were going to try to invest in land and vineyards and do gardens, which take time, don't do any of that. We're just going to wait because we're going to go back. And Jeremiah writes them, it's both pastoral and prophetic, kind of like me. (laughs) You can throw the tomatoes later. I'm so glad I'm in Canada not the, okay. Like I said, in some of the churches I became a Christian in, they were, there was a lot of talk back. And I know that annoys some of you uh, more proper Baptists. But I said, there's other kinds of Baptists in the States, but in Pentecostal church, somebody say, Jesus, help him. That would be one of those Jesus, help him moments. Um, <clears throat> but only a few people, never the whole congregation. There's always loud people and quiet people in most churches. But... So the false prophets were telling them, oh, it's only going to be a short time. Maybe two years and you'll go back. Everything's going to go back to the way it was. We're going to have a good Judean king on the throne again. We're going to go back to the land. We're going to worship again at the temple, which they couldn't do normal temple sacrifice because things were now in disarray. Eventually those temples destroyed. But We're going to go, everything's going to be fine. We're going to go back to the good old days when Pilgrim Baptist was first planted in 1965 where everyone loved Jesus and everyone sang off the same songbook page and we didn't have words off the wall and we had uh, this and that and we had the other thing. We're going to go back to 10 years ago here at Pilgrim when it was just the glory days or we're going to go back to 5 years ago or, or 15 years ago. Oh, things are just going to be wonderful, but life has changed. And the word of the Lord comes to the prophet Jeremiah to saying there always are these false prophets which keep telling you everything's just going to go back. This nostalgic yearning. I have it. I remember days in my whole church life where there were moves of the Spirit of God. Before the distraction of social media and our screens and there was a sense where people would willingly spend time marinating and listening and praying and arguing with the Lord. I don't know what that looks like in our generation, but you can't go back. Look at your neighbor and say, you can't go back. That was weak. Play with me just a little bit. You don't have to, but you can't go back. Say it to your other neighbor, you can't go back. False prophets say we can go back to that perfect time, whatever it is, and you know it wasn't actually perfect. There was a lot of sinfulness and bad things going on, but our memory skews it unless it was highly traumatic, our memory skews to remember the good so we can go on in life. The false prophets are beating the drums of nationalism. And so this word peace or shalom, the prophet Jeremiah throughout most of this book is saying they are false prophets promising false peace. You will not flourish if you listen to the voice that says, if we can just sing the hymns like we used to sing them, if we just had a few more young families in this church, if we just, if we just, if we just, always based on this sense of going back to a time of nostalgia, which is a warped memory, but thank God for prophets in our midst who stand up and say, your memory's deceiving you. You can't go back. That's not how the creation works. Because sometimes we have to hear that hard word in order to then receive the prophetic word of new life and new hope. You say, you can't go back to where you came from. You have to live now fully present and lean into the future of what we call eschatological end times hope of God is at work. And he is eventually going to reveal the fullness of justice and love and truth. We lean into the future, not into the past in this way. It's interesting, in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 10, Jeremiah complains that there are false prophets telling lies about peace while the empire was approaching before the final fall. And there were false prophets prophesying all the way into the conquering of their own kingdom. And that's how churches tend to fall into decay, decay, well, that too, I guess, decay and ruin. That's how in our spiritual lives we... We say, oh, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, and we stop tending the garden that God has given us. We stop tending the things of the Spirit. We, we, say, we let other distractions press in, and soon that space that we had made for God is now overgrown and gone. And, and the false prophets say, oh, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. And Jeremiah says, they keep prophesying false peace. The empire is approaching, you must change. In Jeremiah 6.14, again, he says this, the word of the Lord about false prophets. He says, They dress the wounds of my people as though it were not serious. This is the Old Testament version of putting a band aid on a bullet hole. They prophesy, Peace, peace, when there is, excuse me, no peace. By the time the people are exiled, we have this true word about real peace in Jeremiah 29 from a true prophet. He sends a letter to those in exile. And he calls on God's people to be faithful instead of seeking the overthrow of their enemy. Work for shalom, wholeness, salvation, peace. Shalom in their relationships with each other. Shalom in their city. We are to seek God's wholeness in our lives, through our church, in our city, and in our innermost being. And the path to peace is often ironically through the warfare of the spirit, but as Paul says, not against flesh and blood. I think sometimes we fight the wrong battles because we hear these sort of false prophetic words. Remember the Sadducees and the Pharisees during Jesus' time, the religious layman's club, holiness clubs of the day, believed that the same issue that we see here. They believed if we could take the holiness codes that were for the building of the ancient temple of Israel and we expanded that so everyone followed them in all of the land of Israel, like the physical land then God will be forced to move his hand and overthrow the Romans. And they're so irritated with Jesus because he's like, that ain't it, folks. God's not looking for the holiness codes of the temple to be expanded to all of Israel. He's looking to do something new, and he's doing it in me, the person of Jesus, he tells them. But they miss Jesus because they get so fixated on this idea of external holiness that they can't receive the true holiness that comes from the indwelling spirit of Jesus Christ. We can be distracted. Words that seem like they're right, they seem like they're preaching the right thing about holiness, but they miss the point that we are changed by a living relationship with a living God demonstrated in community and by works that flow out of his grace in our lives. But sometimes we get so fixated on trying to to deal with the outside, the rules, the list, that we realize the list was only to point us to something greater, who is Jesus, who writes the law of love in our hearts. I know that's a deep word, but just let that marinate for a moment. God calls on the people to be faithful to him, to worship him, and to not sit there and try to micromanage all of these external things of the empire of Babylon, They can't go back to the way it was. God will do a new thing, and he will give them a place to be. But for this season, this 70 years, Jeremiah tells them, this is how it is. So let's unpack it a little more, and and then we'll land it with some application. Flourishing requires God's people to release their false peace. I've already said this, but let me restate it. Flourishing requires God's people to release their sense of false peace that we cling after, usually based on nostalgia and memory, and instead enter into the community as partners with God, with other believers, and with those that are far from God, making space for God's presence in the current community. You may have to release your false sense of peace to become opening space as we talk about practices in the next two Sunday for your neighbors to encounter Jesus. Well, I want to do everything in this building. We won't reach our neighborhood if we try to do everything in this building. This building is simply a tool for a season. How are you going to release false peace? You begin to invite those neighbors into your life. You begin to look for ways to open the circles of your relationships. And you pray with more intention, with their names if possible, You grow closer to the Lord, and you take more kingdom risks with others instead of settling for false peace, which is just death. I just want to keep myself cocooned in relationally. Flourishing requires God's people to release false peace. Jeremiah says to them, plant vineyards, build houses, have your sons and daughters get married, Let the next generation come forth. Don't decrease. Seek the welfare of the city. Seek the welfare, the shalom, the flourishing of the city. And in that, you will find yours. One bishop in the Church of England said this. The church is the only organization. It's old language, but I'm going to slightly modernize it. The only organization which exists for the benefit of the non member False peace says we exist for us. It's for us. We want to have a cozy little place that makes us think of grandma and cinnamon lattes. We want to have this cozy little... No, that is not the church. The church is a hospital. The church is a place of growth. The church is a birthing ward. The church is a healing place. It is not a museum. False peace. I want to just have warm and fuzzy feelings when I come in, pastor. Why are you talking about this? Because false peace will kill you eventually. It will destroy you. We exist for the benefit of the non-member. And should we ever forget that we put our preferences over the needs of the flourishing of our city, we have ceased to become a church of Jesus Christ, and we have become an idolatrous place of worship of something else that God says, I don't want to hear your worship songs, I don't want to smell your incense, stop offering sacrifices, stop, stop, stop. He says elsewhere in the prophets, false peace. We have to release it in the new year. Maybe Pilgrim has been brought to this place and many churches in North America to a place of disempowerment and exile because God is in it to clarify to bring renewal and revival, to reshape us, to reach new people for Jesus because we were so self-absorbed he had to smash the church in North America in order for it to become a church of Jesus once again. That would be the word of Jeremiah. You're not going back. But if you're willing... To seek the shalom of Jesus in the new season. What is ahead is greater and different than what we had in the past. But if you keep hanging on, it's just death. Maybe God has brought us to this point because what he has for us in the future aligned with his will and his ways is so much greater. Some of you may be angry when I say that. Good. That means that the Holy Spirit is putting a finger right on something in your heart and mind that absolutely needs to be changed. And you have a choice. You can get mad at them. You can shoot the messenger or you can go to the Lord. Churches that shoot the messenger generally go down a death spiral and don't come back. But will we change? You're awfully quiet this morning. Okay, I'll move on. Second thing I just want to say, first one again, was flourishing, release our false peace. What is the false peace you're clinging on to, beloved, in your life, in your relationships in this church? Release it in open space for the presence of the Lord. Second thing flourishing requires, as these are intimately connected, requires honesty about where we are and who we are. You're in Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar is not coming off the throne. You need to change your perspective. You will be faithful to the Lord, but you need to get honest. Our desires need to be reformed. Remember, our desires can be shaped, whether you're talking about love and sexuality in your body or you're talking about your desires about worship and how a church is structured and how we do life together. Desires can be changed. This is part of the gospel of Jesus. You're not locked in. You're not locked in. Whatever genetics or nurture or city or whatever your culture has said, you can become more. They are not locked in. Desires can be shaped. Habits can reform desires. And what you love begins to change. And so we have to be honest about where we're at and what we want to see different in our lives in the new year. Desires often drive us to become just like those around us. Too many churches compromise in the way of we become just like Babylon. We take on King Nebuchadnezzar's religion. We take on the whole thing. And this is not what Jeremiah is saying, mind you. He's saying, seek the flourishing and the welfare while you are also faithful to me. So you understand there's still the ultimate king of the universe is not Nebuchadnezzar, nor was it the last king of Judah, but it is the Lord, Yahweh, or who we would declare as Jesus now. What desires this year do you need to ask the Spirit of Jesus to reshape in you for 2019? What desires are driving you away from the shalom, the peace of God in your heart and mind and in our community? What desires do you need to lay down before the Lord on the spiritual altar and say, God, I release this work in my life? What desire is that? It may be something sinful. It may be something broken. It may be something that's good but the wrong season. What do you need to lay down? Flourishing requires honesty. And the last two here. Flourishing means, number three, feeding ourselves in a way that is different than the empire around us. Feeding ourselves in a different way. They were exiled into Babylon. They couldn't go back and worship at the temple anymore. How Judaism begins to change during the prophetic era moves towards the the rabbinical model. And of course, in Christianity, it changes entirely. But there is a shift in how they experience spiritual vitality. Maybe the way you fed yourself spiritually isn't working anymore and it's time to begin to, ex- to move into different practices of the spiritual life. Still calling on scripture and prayer and worship and community, but begin to look at different ways that we can experience those things in our individual lives and in our collective life. Jeremiah tells them, don't think uh, about things going back to the way they were, but here, grow your food here. Flourish here. Here, where you are, don't abandon hope, but look how you can engage differently these things in this new situation. It means for churches things like we're less programmatic. In the old days, churches felt they were not even that long ago in the 80s and 90s if they had a list of programs that was, you know, we have 40 different programs, look at all the things we're doing. Nowadays, I look at those lists and I think. It's, it's a club, and it's so inward, and our are, and are people truly... Maybe they did for a season, but they don't anymore. How do we engage differently? How do we live the church differently? We'll unpack that more in the next two Sundays. What communal practices do we need to recommit to in a new way in order to show our city a space where there is another king and another claim on the ultimate reality? <clears throat> I could pause and make a political comment. <clears throat> there's a reason why totalitarian regimes crack down on Christians. There's a reason why my Mennonite ancestors were brutally oppressed by the so-called Christian state. Because if you begin to grasp the power of the Spirit that Jesus is Lord and he's the ultimate claim, that means that any claim that a Nebuchadnezzar, a Donald Trump, a Shia, Trudeau, uh, the, the rulers of the fake Christian churches in ancient Europe or old Europe had about being ultimate is dethroned, if we say as Christians there's another power at work and when you receive the Spirit, there's a power at work in you that will outlast every empire, there's an empowerment for individuals in that and for communities. And emperors get it. This is Epiphany Sunday. The wise men came and the ruler, the little puppet ruler over the Judean territory of Jesus' birth said, oh, wise men, you're coming. That would have been a huge thing, by the way, to have these three Zoroastrian wise men with all of their uh, entourage show up in little part of, in Jerusalem, and then looking in ancient Israel. That would have put Herod's, like the hair on the back of his head were standing up, right? Why are they coming to worship a king? I'm the king over this territory. When you find him, three wise men, tell me where you find the baby so that I might go and worship And these were three wise men. I like that. Three wise men, not three stooges, right? Like they knew, okay, yeah, okay, Herod. And they're coming from the Persian. They probably have stuff way more glamorous than whatever Herod's thinking he's ruling over as a little sub-ruler within the Roman Empire. And the Lord warns them in a dream, Persia's not it, Herod's not it. There's a greater thing. There's a God who is ruling and is coming one day fully. Don't go back the way you came. And they were wise men, not stooges. They did not go back the route to tell Herod. We need to recommit ourselves to show there's another way of living. Fourth and finally, flourishing as a follower of Jesus means living in prophetic tension with seeking shalom. Prophetic tension and peace. Wait a second. That seems contradictory. Is it tension or is it peace, pastor? It's both. Or what the Lutheran theologians would call it's dialectical. It's both and together. We live in prophetic tension the now and the not yet. Shalom of God is not assimilation into the larger cultures around us, but Jesus calls us out and makes us a new people. And we can value all the pieces of culture we bring. And we absolutely should. And sometimes the church has said it does, but it values one over the other. But at the end of the day, we live in a prophetic tension with the cultures around us and that we are part of. And this is something we'll unpack more, but 1 John chapter 2, verses... 15 through 17, he says this, do not love the world nor anything in the world. He says, if you love the world in the sense of the world being your ultimate, love for the Father is not in you. And then he talks about how we can get distracted when we miss the tension. We can follow the lust of the flesh, the desires of our flesh unordered, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life these things can draw us away so we continually come back and say, okay, Jesus, what does it mean to live in right relationship with my body, with what I see of others, and my sense of pride? How do I live those things in a good way? And we'll unpack that more in the rest of the series. But number four, flourishing means living in prophetic tension. Would you say prophetic tension with me? Prophetic tension. So let me leave you with these next steps, and then we'll go to communion. Are you awake? So, so quiet today, I, I don't know. I was around South Dakotans there, it must be louder. Um, the first step for your next steps in 2019, I would humbly suggest, is commit to follow God who is now fully revealed in Jesus. I'm not going to try to convince you, I'm just going to proclaim to you this morning that Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. The kingdoms of this world claim that they're ultimate, but they're not. They're penultimate to the ultimacy of Jesus. If you receive Jesus in his spirit, something greater is working in you than is in the world. And if you're going to flourish out there, you need him inside of you, wherever you go. That Jesus is Lord wherever you are, that you're a roaming ambassador, a walking piece of the kingdom of God. But you've got to have his spirit in you. Otherwise, you will simply be assimilated into Babylon. Instead of blessing Babylon, Babylon will crush you and assimilate you into its claims of lordship. I think the other thing to say, that one is commit to following Jesus. If you're not, you can do that this morning. The second thing I would say is stop seeking false peace. Some of you want false peace instead of sort of the shalom of God and the prophetic tension. You want peace, that's simply assimilation to the world around you. False peace in not confronting sins and desires in your heart that need to be confronted. False peace. False peace with fake relationships. God wants us to go deeper in relationship in this church and our neighborhood. And false peace in chasing yesterday's warm, nostalgic memories, causing us to ignore being fully present in today and the future of God in our midst. God works in our experiences of exile and loss, and yet he calls us to be a covenant community, and he will build his church. Hear the words of Jeremiah the prophet. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh fully revealed in Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah, the God who claims us all. Would you stand with me and we're going to pray. Oh yeah, we might have to sit again, but that's okay. I don't know if we have a roaming musician for communion, but now would be the time musician to, to uh, man your battle stations for the Lord. <laughs> Father, thank you that you are at work in this church and this people. and You call us into flourishing and to seeking shalom and to be people who make space for your presence in our lives and our neighborhoods and our families and friendships. We have desires that are disordered and need to be reordered in your love. We have often bought the lies of the world that it is what it is. And in fact, there is something else going on. More beautiful and wonderful than we can possibly imagine. And Holy Spirit, move in this church in the new year. We want to see new people come to know you and connect with you. We want to be a blessing to our neighborhoods. We want people to hear the music of the other kingdom, Lord. And God, we know there's thousands of neighbors around us here in Sunset and South Van and our greater cities, wherever we come from, that need to know your love, but have been dulled to sleep. But let us not follow them in their path of being numbed, but let us be awakened to what you have for us, individually, communally, for the sake of the world and your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.